It's really about bringing innovative Australian research out of the university labs and into real applications. We thought we knew everything we wanted to know about human evolution, but there was this amazing discovery out of the tip of the pinky. Do you think we have the ability to turn this around? So I thought, what are we going to do with an electrode you can tie in a knot? Uh, Children are all engaged, they're ready to learn, they're excited. It's not just about having more science, it's about doing the right things with that science. Welcome to Can You Tell Me How? Powerful Answers to Urgent Questions, a podcast series from the University of Wollongong. My name's Lizzie Jack. And my name is William Verity. So, Lizzie. Yes. Who are you? Who am I? Um, I am a podcast producer and I recently graduated from this fine institution, the University of Wollongong. And yeah, we're back here in the, uh, in the radio studio, my old haunt. Uh, yeah, so now I'm just dabbling in a bit of freelance podcast production, a bit of writing here and there. Yeah, super interested in this series though. So this is the second podcast series that the university has ever produced. Yeah. The first one was last year. It was called Can You Tell Me Why? Correct. And I was one of the hosts on that. You and were. one of my former students actually was my co-host, mm-hmm. Hannah Laxton-Kuntz. So I have been a journalist for a a long time, Mm. um, mostly print journalism, but in the last five years I kind of reinvented myself and have done documentaries, radio documentaries and podcasts and I've uh, worked for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC here in Australia and I am absolutely thrilled to be doing this second podcast series. Tell us a little bit about what the kind of the basis, why are we doing this series? What's it about? Yeah, so I think the tagline kind of says it all. We've got powerful answers to urgent questions. So yeah, we've got some amazing research initiatives happening here at the university. And yeah, we want people to know about it. So, you know, from how to store your renewable energy to how to get better when you're sick to how to not rely on medication, we're going to kind of cover all bases on how to live your best life yeah. based on the research well, yeah. happened here. I mean, they're, they're here. very big issues. They're, I mean, huge. literally from saving the world to saving lives mm. to to starting ha- lives to starting lives. Yeah. It's it, we've got it all there, and and these stories we the team behind this program have chosen not only because they are. Absolutely amazing, and they're great stories, but also because of the impact that they have on the world. So this is this is not ivory tower stuff, and the way that we've made these programs is not just this isn't dry kind of academia. Mm. This is really, really is changing the world. Yeah. So you're going to kick us off for episode yes. one. What have you got for All us? All right. So so we thought we'd we'd start with a particularly strong episode. This one's called "Seeing Is Believing." So if you are listening to this in the second half of 2019 and you make it onto the campus of the University of Wollongong, you will see a building site. Uh, so it looks like a pretty standard building site, probably a five- or six-storey building. This is the newest institute here at the university. It's called Molecular Horizons. As you will hear, it is far from an ordinary building. It's essentially a building to house microscopes. And what this institute 
will do, is doing already, is to look at those molecular and atomic level of bugs, uh, proteins. We're going to meet some worms. We're going to meet some worms that have been injected with luminescent jellyfish cells nice. <laughs> um, in order to solve some of the most pressing health issues of our time. Yeah, it can't get much bigger than that. So <laughs> good way to start us off. All right, so I'm standing here uh, beside a building site on the campus of University of Wollongong. Um, sign saying danger, construction site, do not enter. I suppose it's a, I'm guessing a five or six story building surrounded by scaffolding. Uh, and I'm standing next to the man who is going to be in charge of this building when it's finished towards the end of this year. Antoine von Ogen came to the University of Wollongong after studying in Holland and then 10 years at Harvard in the United States. He's the director of the university's newest institute, Molecular Horizons. It's an institute that focuses on the molecular life sciences, Being at a small and young university allows you to do things that, in a way, have much bigger impact locally and beyond than what you would be able to do at a bigger university like Harvard or any of the other big sandstone universities. Uh, and, and particularly the University of Wollongong, it's a, it's a place that's run by people who really have an appetite for bold decisions and going into directions that are exciting. There is an ability by the university to do it quickly and to do it in a, in a way that's decisive. I think we're standing next to the, the evidence of that and, and the direction that we're taking with Molecular Horizons I think will do wonders for the university in terms of building capacity, training the next generation of students uh, at a level uh, that is, I think, quite unique in the world. Okay, well, let's go and find somewhere a little bit quieter and we'll continue our conversation. You are a uh, chemist? Is that the right? <laughs> I don't even know what you are. So how, how would I describe you? This is one of those questions where I really don't have a good answer to. I wake up every morning as a researcher, look in the mirror and simply don't know what I am. I'm trained originally as a physicist, then became a chemist, became a biologist. I'm a mix between the three of them. And more recently started with colleagues uh, population health studies. So I've started to become somewhat of a social scientist as well. This might seem like an obvious question, but I think it's worth asking. What is your job as the director of the Institute? Herding cats. (laughs) (laughs) It's my job to make magic happen by putting the right people together. That, I think, really is exactly what I'm supposed to do and what I also find most enjoyable to do. What's the concept behind Molecular Horizon? It's an odd name. It doesn't immediately reveal its meaning, to me, anyway. What's the genesis of the idea? What are you hoping to achieve here? The name Molecular Horizons, I think, hits exactly the right level of not giving away too much detail in the name so that it keeps people on their toes in terms of curiosity. What does it really mean? While also telling exactly what we're doing. We want to visualize 
molecules. We really want to see over the horizon of current technology and really be able to understand at a level never been done before what molecules are doing in the context of cells and, and living organisms. The philosophy behind the Institute is to bring together multiple disciplines, biologists, chemists, physicists, engineers, material scientists, to develop technology that allows us to visualize life and to use those tools to understand how disease works. And then with that knowledge, come up with better therapies and, and better cures. So the Institute will focus on research where it can deliver everything from the basic science right through to clinical solutions. In a little while, we're going to meet a woman who's using worms to cure motor neurone disease. But first, let's hear about Professor Van Ogen's research. And a warning here, what you're about to hear you may find somewhat disturbing. This is all about superbugs. We've, as a society, used antibiotics for the last 60, 70 years. And antibiotics are drugs, as we all probably know, that will help fight bacterial infections. Antibiotics are drugs that specifically kill bacteria and, and leave us fine as humans. And those are drugs that revolutionized medicine. They've saved hundreds of millions of lives. Not anymore. Bacteria are slowly becoming uh, more and more frequently resistant to antibiotics, meaning that they've evolutionarily adapted to be insensitive to antibiotics. And that means that if you go to a doctor with a simple infection, the antibiotics you're prescribed might not work. And this is a problem that's growing and growing and might result in a situation where we go back to the pre-antibiotic age that they simply don't work anymore. That's a massive problem. Okay, so why is that a massive problem? With Humanity has existed for m most of the time without antibiotics. Why is that such a big problem? You're absolutely right. We've been doing pretty fine for hundreds of thousands of years without antibiotics, but understand that the average life expectancy wasn't 70 or 80 years. It was only 30 or 40 years, uh, many thousands of years ago mainly because of bacterial infections typically being deadly. And this is something as a modern society, we've started to get used to the fact that they're not deadly, that they're simple health problems easily fixed by antibiotics. If you take that out of the equation, uh, we might very well go back to a situation where a simple chest infection in a five-year-old could become deadly. We are producing new and stronger and different strains of antibiotics. Why can't we just continue doing that? Why can't we beat the bacteria in this evolutionary race? Bacteria are uh, in many ways much more clever than you and I. So we have a life cycle, a generational cycle of 30 years. That means that evolution in humans is a very slow process. Bacteria divide uh, at speeds up to 20 minutes. So that means that evolutionary changes can creep in much, much more readily. Every time we develop as a society a new antibiotic, often within a time span of a few years, we will see bacterial infections in the clinic that are completely resistant to it. Bacteria are simply outwitting us. 
And here is where Professor Van Ogen comes in. Developing new antibiotics is important, but it's not going to solve the problem. But it's also, as the Americans say, kicking the can down the road. It really will not give us a sustainable solution. The answer is to be found in the heart of the bacteria themselves. What is it in their cells that enables them to adapt so quickly to become resistant to antibiotics? But what I really try to do as a researcher with my research group is to use high-powered microscopes to visualize how bacteria work, how they survive, how they divide and how they evolve in the presence of antibiotics. So we visualize in my research group how fast the evolutionary processes take place that make them resistant to bacteria and we've tried to figure out what the molecular mechanisms are, as we call them, how the molecules move inside bacterial cells, how they're responsible for these evolutionary processes. If you find out how the molecules, the building blocks of life, how they work and how they in bacteria make this evolution happen, then you have potentially a tool in hand to stop these fast evolutionary processes. So the motto that we and many other colleagues in the field use is seeing is believing. The best way to understand how something works in every aspect of life is to look at it, to study it and see how it works. If you want to know how a car works, you lift the hood, you look at the engine and you figure out how it works. And that's exactly what we do with bacterial cells, with bacteria. We use microscopes to visualize how they work. We use different types of microscopy. The new institute, Molecular Horizons, will also roll out a number of different types of microscopy, all with a common goal, can we visualize how cells and molecules work. One type of microscopy that my research group uses is called optical microscopy. That's very similar to the microscopes that you and I still remember from high school biology. You have a couple of lenses, you look through an eyepiece and you use light to, to see how stuff looks like. One type of microscopy we will be using in the new building is something called electron microscopy. So instead of using light, we're now using electrons to look at stuff that's even smaller. And the beauty about electrons is that it allows you to look at the atomic details of how proteins are, are made up, how proteins are structured. And the level of detail with which we can look inside these proteins is so fine that it places enormous constraints on the building because of the need to isolate the microscopes from any vibration or acoustics or electromagnetic interference. And this is really a challenge, not just from a scientific point of view, but also from a construction point of view. The rooms where the microscopes will be placed, the electron microscopes, are so quiet so decoupled from the acoustic environment, as we say this in, in more scientific terms, that you would even be perturbed if you would be able to hear the waves crashing on the beach five kilometers from here. They need to be shielded 
from electromagnetic interference to a point where all the elevators need to be at least 25-30 meters away. So the whole building is designed around achieving that level of quietness, vibrationally, acoustically, and electromagnetic. One interesting uh, tidbit of information, and this gets the, uh, the construction people incredibly excited that are currently on site, is that normally when you build a building, you use concrete. And concrete, of course, is reinforced by rebar, by, by metal structures that keep the concrete uh, together. Again, because of the electromagnetic interference, we cannot have any ferrous metal close to the microscopes. So the lower half of the building, the first two floors, are all built up from concrete that has glass fiber reinforcement instead of the metal reinforcement. I've been told that it's the biggest structure on the face of the planet that has glass fiber reinforced concrete. So it's quite a special building. The strategy and also philosophy of the Institute is one where we have a number of uh, technical expertises in the Institute. These are what we would call the biophysicists, people who visualize proteins, who visualize cells. These are chemists, people who can develop potentially new drug molecules, for example. And these are molecular biologists, people who really know how the molecules in the cells work. And we also have a number of disease themes. We're very interested in superbugs, the same problem that my research group is interested in. The Institute also has a strength in neurodegenerative diseases. So now what we then do is we look at the disease themes, we look at the disciplines and we answer the question, are we able for a particular disease to fill the whole pipeline from basic research basic molecular visualization all the way to clinical context. It's a kind of <laughs> Let's meet one of the scientists who will be working at Molecular Horizons. Hello, I am Dr. Yilian Chu. I am a lecturer at the University of Wollongong and a researcher at the Illawarra Health and Medical Research Institute. And I am also a member of Molecular Horizons, which is the new research institute here at UOW. We're in the labs of the Illawarra Health and Medical Research Institute, which is a joint initiative of the University of Wollongong and Illawarra Shoalhaven Local Health District. Based in a purpose-built facility at UOW's Wollongong campus, the goal of IMRI is to help foster and grow medical research in the Illawarra. This is where Dr. Li Yan Chu does her research. So um, this is um, level three of the Illawarra Health and Medical Research Institute, or IMRI. Um, so this is our microscope room. So in here we have three microscopes, two which are called dissecting microscopes. They are low magnification. And one we have quite a high magnification one, which goes samples can be magnified up to like a thousand times. So they look not dissimilar to the ones that I might have used at school. Yeah, you can easily transport the smaller microscopes into um, outside the lab. That They're perfectly safe. You just need a power source. The only slightly dangerous thing is it has a mercury lamp, and obviously mercury is not very good for you. So if you kind of got it on yourself, that's not ideal. So that needs to be controlled. And now it's time to turn on the microscope. microscope. Um, so, so I have a dust cover on top of my microscope because... 
that's how I like to roll um, and then we need to turn it on we give it a, a minute or so to warm up and then we press the ignition which is a lot less dramatic than it actually sounds um, so when we do that we write down the bulb hours because it's a mercury bulb you have to leave it on for half an hour before you turn it off or else there's the risk that it might explode it has never exploded in my career so far time it's 13.23 okay ignition so we turn this on so this starts heating up and then we have our shutter open so i'm going to turn on the microscope pop the plates on here for you and i will focus the eyepiece and i can show you the awesome wormies right all right so i was imagining something bigger there's um the okay let's have a look so i'm now looking oh wow <laughs> Yes, exactly as you would expect worms to be, but a great deal smaller than the garden worm, but looking pretty similar. So they're sitting on a layer of bacteria, and they are a variety of ages. So there are some adults which are capable of laying eggs, and there are some larvae which are still developing. So now we, we're hearing this slightly, slight ticking noise. That's the mercury lamp kind of warming up. The worms sit on a bacterial lawn because it is their food source. So they like to gather around their food. And they'll basically sit there and reproduce through a process called self-fertilization, where they basically make both eggs and sperm so they can make essentially clones of themselves. So each adult animal makes 300 clones of itself, which is pretty cool. Dr. Lian Chu uses these worms to study how molecules behave. They are transparent, relatively simple, but alive. So using fluorescent proteins found in jellyfish, she can identify and watch these cells. There is a sort of dark green tinge, and I can see perhaps a dozen worms through this is through the microscope, and each one has sort of sort of like seeing a, a coastal city from the air. It's defined by various fluorescent lights. What are those lights that I can see, those green fluorescent lights? It's a molecule called SOD1, which has been implicated as a genetic factor in motor neuron disease. And we've put it into the muscle of the worm. So this muscle is called the body wall muscle, which is why it seems to draw an outline of the worm. And what we, we use with this is it just gives us an idea of when the worm is stressed or when the worm ages, what the behavior of this molecule is because we have the fluorescent protein to kind of tag it. So we can kind of see where it is in the entire tissue. And we can see it just down the microscope because the worm is transparent. So this will inform our view of how motor neuron disease progresses. So I think ultimately what we'd like to know is why certain molecules are genetic risk factors for particular diseases. And we may know they're a risk factor, but we don't really know why. So to understand why and to develop treatments for people who have such disorders, we need to understand what the fundamental basis is for that molecule. What does it do in the cell normally in a healthy person and what changes when you get sick? So we use the worm as a model because we can see through it. We are able to manipulate its genetics really well, um, and we can age them very quickly. So a worm lives only about three or four weeks, whereas a mouse, for example, could live years. 
So we could do our experiments in the worms much quicker than we could do them in a bigger animal. So it's all pretty exciting stuff. It was the first time I had ever been in a proper scientific lab, and I was impressed. Here are passionate, smart, committed people who are tackling real medical issues. They're changing lives. What is it that energizes you? What is it that you love about your work? Well, I think it's that every day I get to do something slightly different. I think the thing about science is that you do experiments, and experiments are more likely to not work than to work. And I think that's kind of the exciting thing. And to have um, a job where you can go into work and make mistakes, and yet those mistakes inform you about what's happening in actual life. That is truly amazing. (laughs) For one moment, you know something that no one else knows. Yeah, so that's really interesting that they had to make the building around what will work with the microscopes. Like, I never thought about what would go into the building that would affect how a microscope works. Yes, you know? it's, it's a unique building in the world. And what, one of the things that I got out of that was how you can do things at a university like Wollongong, which is kind of small-ish and young-ish, that you can't do uh, at a place like Harvard, for instance. And certainly I've been around this university for more than 10 years, and I sense that. There's a, there's a real sense of dynamism that you get from a young, um, smaller university of, let's just do it. Let's, yeah. just, let's just make some, these things happen. That's, this is a great example of that happening. Yeah, it's amazing. That's it for this time. What have we got for next time? You've got something really interesting, haven't you? Yeah, so next time we're going to be looking at how we can use sodium, commonly known as table salt, to transform renewable energy storage in batteries. So I'm holding in my hands components for a coin cell battery. And so this is basically our uh, bread and butter of what we do when we're developing these batteries. So, you know, we try it with 1% carbon, 2% carbon, 3% carbon, 10% carbon, you know, just really trying out all of these different combinations of materials and manufacturing techniques till we hit on a winner. And then we can start to develop that further and further and further. For more information on this episode or others in the series and to find out more about how UOW's research is solving society's biggest questions, visit Stand. And you may also want to check out the first series of this podcast, which is called Can You Tell Me Why? And don't forget to review us wherever you get this podcast. I'm William Verity. I'm Lizzie Jack. Thanks for listening.